1 Corinthians chapter 14 is one of the most difficult passages in all of 1 Corinthians 14 to interpret. There's so many different issues. In fact, one commentator, biblical scholar that has uh, an entire building named after him at a seminary, when I got to this section in his commentary, just said, this is a hard passage. <laughs> That's how he started it out. There are several things going on in 1 Corinthians 14 uh, that we'll get into in just a minute. But the hope that we have is that God gave us his word, that we might understand it, and that we might rightly apply it to our life, and that we might grow in him through it. So I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're w walking through a series called Counterculture, looking at how to live for Christ in a world that isn't. We've been in sort of a mini-series on spiritual gifts, and this is our fourth and final week on spiritual gifts, titled Spiritual Gifts Part 4. Last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, which is commonly known as the love chapter. I titled that From Time to Eternity. I forgot to give you an alternate title would have been Spiritual Gifts Part 3, because as we saw last week, we, we must look at love and that love chapter in light of the greater passage, and that's 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And what that tells us is that if Paul had to take what is three chapters in our English Bible to address one issue in Corinth, they really had some stuff messed up, right? I mean, he's having to really take some time to try to unwrap some of these knots that they're in regarding their misunderstanding of spiritual gifts. Most heresy comes about not at the interpretive part of Scripture, but in the application of Scripture. So it was true that they had spiritual gifts. It was true that God's Spirit had filled them and they had been gifted for a service. But their problems arose in how they applied that truth. And Paul continues to have to address that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We'll look at spiritual gifts part 4. And then after we finish this chapter today, we'll begin to look at the resurrection as we move towards Easter in 1 Corinthians 15. So let's begin 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 1. He says, pursue love. And desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, let's just stop there for just a moment. Pursue what? Love. And hey, yes, desire spiritual gifts and desire to operate in those. Because as we've seen, they're for the building up of the body. But what does he exalt over the other spiritual gifts right here at the very onset of chapter 14? Especially that you may prophesy. Now, we're going to see why. He brings that to the front in just a moment. Look at verse 2. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. Now, this immediately is why people have a problem interpreting this chapter. Because there were the tongues that we see in Acts chapter 2, which were known languages that were understood. And then there were tongues that have a history in the cultic religions that the Corinthians would have been accustomed to worshiping where you got uh, a word from your deity, from your God, which was an idol that you had made or an oracle from that idol. And it was just this gibberish uh, noise that they were claiming was a word from this little g, God, that they were worshiping. And so as Paul is talking here, at times he's talking about the tongues that we see in Acts 2, which were known languages with an interpreter. There are times where he's talking about this background 
uh, in Corinth that they would have very much understood that was associated with the worship of these false gods. Then also in verse 2 where it says spirit, some of your Bibles will have it lowercase s, some caps. Well, that's again one of those interpretive issues. Is he talking about the spirit of God here or is he talking about the spirit of man? Most agree that he's talking about the spirit of man because what Paul is actually doing through this chapter as he is exalting prophecy and spiritual gifts that benefit the body versus what the Corinthians were doing, which is they had a version of tongues that was just edifying themselves and building themselves up and pointing to self. So with that context, look at verse 3. But he who prophesies speaks edification. That's a key word through this whole chapter, edification. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself now paul is saying this in a negative manner he's saying look what you're doing is not good but he who prophesies edifies the church edify 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 i wish that you all spoke with tongues but even more that you prophesy for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Did you pick up on a key word that's repeated there? Edification. In the Greek, the etymology of that word, it's actually two words combined. It's the word oikos that we would translate as house, and domeo, which means to build. So it's literally speaking of the building up of a house. And what Paul is saying is he's Saying, look, prophecy, if you're really wanting to desire something, desire gifts, and he's using prophecy as an example, desire those gifts that build up the body rather than what the Corinthians were doing, which was exalting a gift, whether it was a false gift or a true gift, they were exalting it in a way to point to the individual, to exalt themselves, to build up themselves. And Paul's saying, no, no, that's what we've been talking about is building up one another, not, not pointing to the individual, not the building up of the self. And you have to, again, understand this in the context. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 31 for just a minute. 1 Corinthians 12, 31, he says, But earnestly desire the best gifts, and I'll show you a more excellent way. Remember, he said, look, desire those gifts that build up the body, but let me show you what's most important. And what did he spend all of chapter 13 doing? Talking about the importance of love. Saying it doesn't matter what gift you have, if it's not in love, it doesn't matter. Love is essential. Love has to exist as you operate in your gifts. It must be done also in love. And then, so when you get to chapter 14, verse 1, again, pursue love. And desire spiritual gifts, yes, but especially that you may prophesy. Especially that you may, you may do those things that build up others rather than point to self. That brings us to our first point today is this. The building up of the body is greater than any gift or individual that exercises that gift. Paul is giving preference to the building up of the body. Now that's not to mean that the individual doesn't matter. Each individual in the body of Christ matters. Yes. God knows you each by name. He knows the number of hairs on your head. Christ died for us each alike, not more one than the other. Each individual matters, yes. But what Paul is saying is that Look, the gift you've been given is to build up the body. It is to show a concern for the whole. And again, that's not to say that we trample over 
people in the sake of the, quote, greater good. I'm not saying that either. But I'm saying that God has not called us to serve in such a way that is individualistic. He's not called us to be mavericks. He has called us to serve together in community in the context of the local body and to bring a service that the result of it is that others around you are built up. So if you are serving or your mindset or your operation of your spiritual gifts, if the outcome of that is individuality and the promotion of self, then you're out of order according to God's word. And so Paul is setting the standard down because the Corinthian church was a mess. I mean, they were figuring out things to get divided over. They were divided over who they were following. Some say Paul, some say Apollo, some saw Peter, some say, well, I'm just following Jesus. And then, you know, they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. I mean, come on. They had issues. So Paul is really having to lay down some groundwork to help them understand how these spiritual gifts are to function. Imagine you took your car to a mechanic, and your car's broke down. You get it to the mechanic, and you're watching the mechanic work on your car. And the mechanic turns a wrench in a certain way, and you go, man, that is a great wrench, and you know how to operate that wrench. That is impressive. And you become so enamored with how he can operate that wrench that you just forget your car, forget it needs to be fixed, and you just walk home going, man, that was some impressive wrench turning. That was amazing. What if you did that? What if you got so focused on the part that you forget the fact that the car needs to be fixed? That in essence is what Paul is saying is, hey, don't get so hung up on this gift that you forget there's a bigger picture here. It's kind of the, the saying of missing the forest for the trees, right? He's saying, look, don't just be focused on this. Be focused on what this has to do within the greater body. Each individual matters, but we grow as we relate to one another. And, and the gifts are given for the edification of those around us. That's why love's so important. Because people are crazy and I'm one of them, right? I mean, we get off on all kinds of tangents. And so unless love is there, we won't serve one another. We won't care to edify one another. But when love is there, when love is there, then we will. Now what's important to realize through all of this is Paul, he's exalting prophecy in those gifts that edify the body. And as we will see as we go through this passage today, there's no one gift that's given to everybody and no one person has all the gifts. And, and that would be the error of the modern charismatic movement is saying that if you don't have the gift of tongues, you haven't received the Holy Spirit. That is a false teaching that is contrary to 1 Corinthians 14. We will see that. And as you go through the book of Acts, you do see the gift of tongues linked with the filling of the Spirit at times. But if you read the whole book of Acts, it's not linked with the filling of the Spirit every time. So what we must do is we must come to Scripture as best we can, allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture and not applying our preconceived ideas onto the text. So what Paul is saying is, look, edify, edify, edify. Desire that which builds up the body. Now let's continue on verse 6. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, so he's continuing his argument, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation or knowledge or prophesying or teaching? So again, what is Paul doing? He's saying, look, quit getting so hung up on this. 
this thing that you're doing that's edifying yourself and get back to that which builds up the body. That's the point. And then he illustrates it, verse 7. Even things without life, either flutes or harp, when, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you'll be speaking into the air. He, he's again, he's pointing out the foolishness of what they were doing. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Verse 12, even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the what? Edification of the church that you seek to excel. He's saying, look, since you're so passionate about this, since you're so hung up on this, get passionate about that which builds others up instead of what points to self. Verse 13, therefore let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. He said, so if you're operating in the biblical gift of tongues, then there needs to be an interpreter and it needs to build up the body. Otherwise, it's out of order is what Paul's saying. So that makes what many people today would call tongues in the church actually out of order. There's no interpretation, and we'll see later there's a bunch of people just calling out at different times, and it becomes chaotic. Look at verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion that I will pray in the spirit, and I will pray with understanding? I will sing in the spirit, I will sing with understanding. Paul again is pointing to the mind that God has given us to worship God with our minds. Otherwise, if I bless with the Spirit, how will one who occupies the place of the informed say amen? And at your giving of thanks, as he does not understand what you say, for you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. There it is again. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Most likely, Paul again is speaking of the known languages here. That's what we clearly see in Scripture. Here's the, the one issue that I have with those that really push hard on a private prayer, prayer language is you, you really have to try to read it into these verses, and there is no clear teaching in any other passage of Scripture that a private prayer language exists. There just isn't, you, and you really have to work to put it into here. But people on the other side of the extreme that would say, well, all of the sign gifts have ceased again. You have to work. Well, how do you, where do you get that from? They have to work it in. And so we see that there are abuses in the application of Scripture on both extremes. And often the truth is found in the middle. Look at what Paul says, verse 18. For I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than all of you, yet in the church. So that is in the gathering of the saints, in the local assembly, like today. I would rather speak five words with understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. That's a big statement. I'd rather speak five words that build you up than 10,000 words that just point to and edify and build up self. Now, again, verse 12, he says, hey, since you're zealous about this, since you have a passion about it, man, be passionate about the things that build up one another. That brings us to our second point today. Passion does not equal right. You can be very passionate about the wrong thing. Anybody been there? Anybody honest enough to admit you've been there? See a few hands. 
Passion does not equal right. You can be very passionate about the wrong thing. This reminds me of all the videos I've seen on like America's Funniest Home Videos or people that have told me stories about their little leaguer in football. Getting that ball and he's turned around and he's running with all of his zeal towards the wrong what? End zone. Have you seen those? I mean, something happens in these little league football players, these little kids with pads that are, you know, the size of them. They're playing and they're running into each other and some kid picks up the ball and he is running and he has passion and he has zeal and he is excited and he hears a crowd. What he doesn't understand is the crowd is saying, you're going the wrong way, stop. All he hears is noise. And in his zeal, he thinks, people are cheering me on. This is great. And in his zeal, he takes the football and he scores a touchdown for the wrong team. Zeal does not make right. We have to stop and ask, is this according to God's word? Where is this leading me? Let me put it to you this way, just getting real practical. If there's something, especially something that's really bothering you, but you find yourself going around talking to people to try to justify your feelings about it, it probably isn't right. Because what you've just done is you've most likely slandered in order to try to justify your misplaced feelings in the first place. <laughs> you follow me all that? Or did that get confusing? In other words, if you have an echo chamber of people that just tell you what you want to hear, that should be a big red flag in the first place. You following me? So zeal does not equal right. Sometimes our spirit is stirred up because God is actually trying to address things in our own heart that aren't right. And that's why we're stirred up. Because the spirit is flashing all of the warning signals and the signs and the bells and whistles saying, you need to deal with this inside of you. So passion does not equal right. You can be very passionate about the wrong thing. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. They weren't bad people. They were just off track. And Paul loved them. Paul's correcting them. And Paul's trying to teach them the right way. So I want us to, to just maybe make note of this. That when we become very passionate about something, it's very healthy to stop and ask, is this the right way? which we know that through according to God's word, does it line up with God's word, and what is the end that this is leading me towards? The book of Proverbs talks a lot about considering the end of a matter. Very wise. Sometimes you can spare yourself a lot of heartache if you'll just stop and go, what does the end of this look like? Where is this leading me? How does this play out? Now, let's look at verses 26 through 40. We're going to move fast and we're going to actually cover this whole chapter in one week y'all are doing well i'm sorry verse 20 through 40 i said 26 we're going to begin at verse 20 where we left off and work through the rest of this chapter brethren do not be children in understanding however in malice be babes but in understanding be mature and the law it is written with men of their of other tongues and other lips i will speak to this people and yet for all that they will not hear me now, this passage in Isaiah that Paul is quoting is very instructive to us because he's talking about known languages. And again, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. And then it says, says the Lord, Therefore tongues are for a sign, not for those who believe, but for unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and there comes those who are uninformed or unbelievers. 
Will they not say to you that you're out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever and uninformed person comes in, he's convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of the heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Again, we have to be careful. Heresy creeps in in the application of things. And the clear interpretation of 1 Corinthians 14 is that Paul is exalting prophecy and gifts that build up the body. And he's calling out the Corinthians in their abuse of tongues and how it is pointing to the individual, to self, and it is not edifying the body. That's the bottom line. Now, verse 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for what? Edification. So, so the evidence that the Spirit is at work is that it's edifying. It's building up the body. That's the real test. And Paul's giving them some instructions about the public worship service. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. Okay, now look at verse 28. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. almost missed my pulpit there. If you take those two verses together, that's what I've been pointing at. Paul gives us guidelines. He says, if there is a tongue, it must be interpreted, and it must be done one at a time. Those two verses rule much of what passes as tongues in the modern charismatic movement as unbiblical. Right there. I mean, that is a clear teaching of Scripture. Now, again, I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I'm just saying we have to go with Scripture. Look at verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. So again, there were abuses, and you see that as you read uh, 1st, 2nd, 3rd century documents. There were people that claimed to be prophets, and they weren't speaking the things of God. And so the church had to judge that. They'd go, ah, that's not right. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let him first keep silent, for you can all prophesy one by one. So even prophecy is supposed to be done decently and in order. God doesn't give a word to two people at the same time to stand up and just start trying to speak over each other. That all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, verses 34 and following, it deals with women in worship. And we already dealt with that in 1 Corinthians 11 and the cultural context of Greeks and Gentiles and Hellenists. And they're all coming together and Paul's trying to help them navigate cultural norms. So I'm not going to go back through all that. You can go watch the sermon on 1 Corinthians 11 uh, for that. We know in the Old and the New Testament there are prophetesses as well as prophets. And, and, and Paul is not trying to put down women, but he is helping them navigate their cultural climate of that day. And so what he says in verse 34, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home for it is shameful for women to speak in a church. Again, this is a cult, what we'd call culturally, culturally conditioned. Uh, we are 2,000 years separated from this, uh, and, and that's why we have a hard time with that. Or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him 
acknowledge that the things which I wrote to you are the commandment of the Lord. For if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly. He, look, he ends where he began. Desire earnestly for prophecy. Do not forbid to speak with tongues. There's the balance. See, it's not forbidding tongues. It's tongues that are done biblically. And most weren't. And most aren't. Verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. So if you take these two verses, verse 26 and verse 40, just look at these two verses. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each one of you is a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, revelation, and interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If you take that, let all things be done for edification. And then you take verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. That's his command to us. So that brings us to our third and final point is this. God cares about the means and the end. You see, God was giving them instruction about not only that he wanted to be worshipped, but how he wanted to be worshipped. And God cares about the means and the end. It is about where you're headed and how you get there. Think about the Israelites on their journey. They had left Egypt, they're heading to the promised land. That's their destination, right? The promised land. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that when you're headed to a place that is called the promised land. You can't really one-up that. It's like, this is it. The promises of God will be fulfilled at the destination that we are going to. That's great. That is huge. That is absolutely an end to look forward to. But was God only concerned about the end that he was leading them to? No, God was very concerned about the means by which they got there, about them learning holiness, about them learning to trust him. They had to receive the instructions for the tabernacle. They had to learn to worship him as they wandered through the wilderness. They received the manna to trust him for their daily bread. They received the water from the rock. They received the quail. They received from God in the wilderness wanderings, and God was very concerned about the means by which they came to the end. God was preparing them to receive the end that he had in store for them. And our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a God who cares about not only where we're headed, but how we get there. And that's what Paul is writing to the Corinthian church about. Is He's saying, guys, you're on a journey. And you need to take the spiritual gifts that you have received and use them along the way to build one another up. And quit pointing to yourself. And quit playing this game where you're exalting one gift over another. But be zealous to see the body built up as you journey with Jesus through this life. You know, Jesus is the means to the end. And he is the end. He's both. I mean, think about it. I've said this before. If you remove Jesus from heaven, what do you have? Well, it's not heaven. Howard Hendricks used to say, Jesus is not a place, it's a person. Uh, I got that wrong. Howard Hendricks used to say, heaven is not a place, it's a person. His name is Jesus. The presence of God is heaven. And so Jesus is not only our means, but he is our end. The only way we get to heaven is through Christ. And through Christ, we get to Christ. We get to experience his fullness one day. 
We get to see him face to face. Paul says, now we, we see dimly, but, uh, kind of like through a stained mirror, but one day we'll see clearly. And so really, as we receive God's spirit and as we receive his gifts and as we receive him, it's a taste of heaven that we receive now. A promise of what is to come. Isn't that amazing? I'm going to close with this, um, with this last story. There, over the years that I've been in, in ministry, I, I have seen people drawn to the things that um, kind of are miraculous, uh, the things that excite them, the things that give them the attraction of emotionalism or God is, is moving. And then I've even seen and watched people that go to a conference and the worship leader has them hold their hands up. And they're worshiping and they're praising and the worship leader says, now jump up and down. And they're doing that. There's nothing wrong with that. Then the worship leader says, do you feel the spirit in your hands? No, I feel blood leaving my hands. That's what I feel. And there are people that manipulate and people that prey on others to control. But man, you want to experience the power of the spirit of the living God? It's in obedience. The ability to obey and to follow God through the leading of his spirit, man, that's where you'll know the power of God in your life. And may that result in some amazing worship experience through music or worship times through prayer or worship through the preaching. Yes, but that's the overflow. That's the overflow. The beginning is that day-to-day obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I think that that's what the Corinthians had out of order. They were putting the experience first, and they were neglecting the inner life. And as we walk with Jesus first, then when we come together, the worship will be on fire. Would you please stand with me? If there's never been a time in your life that you've put your faith in Christ and received his spirit and been filled with his gifting to serve him, man, that's what we want to invite you to do today. Jesus is the son of God who has come and who has died for our sins, who has risen from the grave, who has ascended to the right hand of the Father and promises to save all who call upon him by faith. That as we turn from our way to him, looking to him, believing upon him, he not only forgives us of our sins, but he fills us with his spirit. He gives us through his spirit. He calls us into a life following him, serving him, knowing him more and more each day. And if you've never put your faith in Christ, that's where we'd like to encourage you to begin today, to say, I, I'm ready to put my faith in Jesus, to know him and his power in my life. But most of you, especially on a morning like today with people staying home out of fears of the virus, most of you already believe this. But may we resolve in our hearts to say, Lord, help me Help me to get over my greatest stumbling block, which is most often myself, and see how my life can be lived for the best of others. Let me not leave laying on the ground the good which is in my power to take up and do. I'm going to pray. I'll be down front. One of our elders will be down front. The altar is open as the Lord leads you respond. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you 
that you are at work, that you love us, that you call us to yourself, and that through you we can actually do good and build up your body. That's actually a very exciting and comforting thing to know that you would use us to build up the body. Thank you, Jesus. You're good. Bless now this time of response as we respond to you, our living Lord. It's in your name we pray.